You're listening to the Go For Growth Podcast with Doug Hall. Well, welcome everybody to the Go For Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hall, and today I have the honor of having Andrea Houston, the founder and CEO of Artitudes Design in uh, greater Seattle area, actually in Issaquah specifically, but in the Seattle metro. And Andrea is the brains and the the uh, drive and the vision behind this uh, fantastic women-owned business, and I'm very glad to have Andrea on today. So, Andrea, welcome. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. Good. So, I think people got the idea that design is somewhere in there because it's part of your name, but tell us a little bit about what goes on at Artitudes, what do you focus on, and your background. How'd you get started in this? So, tell, tell everybody, and remember, the whole angle here is go for growth. So, I know your story is all about growth, and that's what I want to bring out. Great. Well, let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. We are a full-service design firm that focuses heavily on presentation and video design. Anything on stage behind a speaker, be it a one-on-one presentation or a one-on-50,000. So we really work to help get messages across to audiences and anything that you want the audience to do. So we're really good at translating marketing messages to technical or technical messages to marketing. We help the speakers with speaker coaching. We write the content. We hire, sometimes we have to hire talent like bikini baristas, things like that. Uh, and then we really help the presentation with the visuals behind the speaker. So that's really what we focus on doing. Now, it wasn't always so what we did. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Right. So you're, you're literally now designing an experience for an audience and doing the design work with the speaker and everything around him or her. Yes, yes, we are. And we do it very well. We've been doing this for years now. So we really honed the tip of our sphere about 10 years ago. Before that, we were a full-service design firm focusing on anything and everything that came our way. But we realized in order to grow and stay relevant, we needed to be in a niche market. So we took what we do really, really well, which is presentation design and video, motion graphics, and focused on that. And it's been a game changer for us. Awesome. So tell me how you got started. Oh, goodness. So I'm not young, but I started in the graphic design industry in the late 80s. And I Mm. worked at this energy management firm. It was an engineering firm focusing on energy management systems for places like Bonneville Power and uh, old Dominion Electric Company, places like that, the big rooms full of computers that helped run energy for people and for businesses. And they hired mm. me as a technical illustrator. It was an internship. <laughs> it was a summer internship, in fact, of 20 hours a week. And I started working there before there were even computers on, on our desk. We did all design by hand. We set type by hand. It was a fascinating job. Now, I was a senior mm. in high school. Uh, but I was almost done with high school because I had lived in Europe and taken a lot of college classes. So I had only one class left at the high school that year. And when my internship was over, they said, we want you to stay. Could you stay even if it's 20 to 25 hours a week? So I said, yeah. So I took my one class at the high school in the morning. Uh, and then I went to work. And then I took evening classes at the local community college. <laughs> and from about mm. 1988 to 1995, I worked my way up in that company to become the creative services manager. So at one point I had seven designers working on my team. And in about 1995, early 95, the company I worked for was purchased by a French company, another French energy company. 
And they called me in one day and they said, we need you to lay off your entire team. So I laid off my entire team, went to work the next day. They called me in and laid me off. Hmm. Two days later, I get a phone call. <laughs> this is back in the times of, you know, the only email we had was the VAC ZMS system. So it wasn't really. Oh, fair. right, right. But yeah. I got a phone call and they said, hey, we made a mistake. We have an entire brand we have to roll out with this new company that purchased us. We need you to come back and bring one of your employees with you. So I said, mm -hmm. ah, let me consider that. I'll call you back. I hung up. And that afternoon, I drove myself to Olympia and got a business license for Artitude's layout and design. Uh, and I came mm. back the next day, and I called them, and I said, sure, I'll come back, but you'll be paying everything for me now. So that was how Artitude started. And what was interesting, they it. were my biggest client for a long time. But then a lot of the people at that energy management firm, when they lost their jobs, uh, they went to this software company that was pretty little in Redmond at the time called Microsoft. Yep. And my phone started yeah. ringing off the hook. So for the first 10 years of Artitude's life, shall we say, uh, I was a sole proprietor. Uh, but I became a freelancer hiring other freelancers. And I got in trouble with the IRS because I had one particular contractor work for me that was wanted for child support in two states. And he listed me as his employer. Despite the fact that he was 1099 and I could prove it, I had to go to battle. So I hired a lawyer. And I had all my books in line and everything. We went to battle. And we won the case. We ended up paying a pretty hefty fine because I was a contractor hiring contractors. And it was that wishy-washy area in the mid-90s, yep. late-90s, where they were looking at contractors and saying, hey, you should be an employee. So my uh, lawyer said to me, the way to avoid this is to incorporate the company. So in 2005, I incorporated and became Artitude's Design and started hiring employees. And here we are now. Awesome. So uh, there are numerous growth lessons in there. And part of it was by uh, bumping your shins and causing some bruises and maybe some blood there. Uh, <laughs> That's how I learned right? lessons, Doug. <laughs> I know. I know. And, and one of the purposes of this podcast is for people to learn through the uh, school of hard knocks of other people and we can share. So thank you for sharing that about contractors and staying on the correct side of the law. That's yeah. a really big deal. That's a really big deal. It is. So, but my next lesson was a hard one, too. My very first employee I hired ended up uh, embezzling money from me with oh, my no. bookkeeper who had been the maid of honor in my wedding. Oh, so it was uh, they <laughs> were in cahoots with each other? They were. So that was a mess I had to clean up as well. So I learned my lessons the hard way. People can tell me things, but I have to learn them myself, apparently. Oh, I hear you. Well, that's uh, the sure <laughs> way of learning. Pain painful sure. and expensive, right? Yes, exactly. So, so your business creation originally was in response to this rehiring offer. Um, was there, and have you figured out over the years, sort of the underlying why of why you own a business, why you ended up starting a business and why you keep running your own business? So those are actually three different questions with three different answers. But why I started the business at the time is because I never wanted anyone to be in control of my destiny again other than me. 
So I was firm in the fact that I wanted to run a company or at least own my own entity so nobody could ever fire me or lay me off again. Okay, that's why number one. That was why number one. Why number two, I continued to do so because my husband and I wanted to have a family. And I decided in order to be a business person, because I was the breadwinner at the time, but in order to be a business person and a mom, I needed to have a flexible enough job where I could run a family and a business at the same time. And Artitudes was small enough at the time that I could do it. It quickly, sure. <laughs> we quickly outgrew that. But at the time, sure. and we, we dealt with five years of infertility treatments in order to get to the point where we could have a family. So it really helped support my lifestyle at the time. And now, I run Artitudes Design, I would say primarily, honestly, our for-profit work funds are non-profit work. We love to give back mm. to the community. We love what we do, and we love working with clients who appreciate us and really creating beauty for somebody. And we say we sell peace of mind. So somebody can be super nervous and scared about what they're doing, and we help them feel confident. And that's what we really do well. But by doing that and doing it for some of the clients we do that for, it enables us to give back to the community as well. Very strong Mm. philanthropic bent here. Awesome. So that's your third why. That is. I love it. Now, you've opened the door then to the next question, which is really, what does your ideal client look like when you're looking for the next one, or are there two paths of for-profit and non-profit? So tell us, tell us what those look like. So our ideal client, now I'm going to tell you, we have a few ideal client profiles. This is something we develop for ourselves and for our clients. We do ideal audience profiles for them. But for ourselves, we work a lot in the enterprise. We do a lot of work with big companies. We start at the C-suite and work our way down. So we try to work side by side with people who, A, appreciate what we're doing and see value in the creativity that we have. B, they need the support. They need somebody to come alongside them as a partner and say, hey, we can help you win this deal. We can help you communicate with this audience. We can help you rise to the top. And that's what we do very well. So we look for clients who value what we do and who also let us be creative. So it's a lot harder to work with the clients who say, you know, I want you to do this, 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 and this. I don't need other designers, and I don't need my clients to be designers. What I need is somebody who sees the value in what we do and lets us take it from there. So that's first. I would say with all my ideal client profiles, they all need to be able to pay us. That's the other thing. We don't like the clients who don't pay us. And we do have that problem. That's an obstacle to growth I will talk about later. Uh, Second, we work with small businesses. So our second ideal client profile is around small businesses. Uh, Clients who are doing venture capitalist pitches, uh, clients who are looking for funding of some sort, or clients who are looking to do a sales pitch to a consumer. So we'll work Mm. with them. And these are a lot of times what I call the boardroom presentation, where they have to convince somebody of something in a small amount of time in a small space. And those are a lot of fun, too. Sometimes those are more exciting. They're higher stakes, uh, but people are really more invested in them because they're hungrier. And then our third ideal client really falls in the philanthropy area. We work a lot with what should I say? So we work a lot with kids and also people who 
need the help. Like we have an arm that works with homeless addicts in Seattle. So we mm. work with the Matt Talbot Center down there. We work with a lot of nonprofits that support children, either children in crisis uh, in the foster care system, abused children, or children who just need a leg up and a better start in life. So these are sort of charitable nonprofits, mostly? Always. Always, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. We love awesome. giving back. Well, that's excellent that you're doing that. You've done a great job of identifying your three kinds of ideal clients. What have been the growth challenges towards getting what you want in those three client areas, growing your business? Oh, there's always challenges. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. we've weathered a lot of yeah, we've weathered a lot of storms here. Uh, a lot of my tra- challenges have been personal, frankly. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about this because they've made me be the stronger person that I am. And I think I'm a better leader because of it. The first challenge I spoke about a little bit was all the infertility treatments. But the second one was the biggest. In 2008, June 1st, 2008, I went into a coma. And I was in a coma for three weeks. Um, I had a surgery that went wrong and they went in to fix it. And I aspirated on the operating table. And I got something called ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome. And it turns your lungs to stone. And at the time, it was a 70% fatality rate. So they put me into a a medical coma because I was dying. They prepared my husband for my death three times. I had four blood transfusions. It was crazy. Uh, They thought I could be brain dead. They did not know how much oxygen I had lost on the operating table and when I had aspirated. And what that did for my company and my leadership, that's where I'm going with this, is I woke up from that coma. Now, the very first thing I said to my husband is, do you have my cell phone? And I think he started crying. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And he said, I didn't know if you were going to be brain dead or not. And he knew I wasn't when I asked for my cell phone. So that was good. Uh, Clearly, yes. Clearly. You were ready to work. (laughs) (laughs) I was ready to go back to work because I was so used to working. And back then, I was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And June and July are biggest, biggest times of the year. So I woke up at the end of June, still in the hospital, and realized there was absolutely no way I was going back to work. Physically, it was impossible. For the first month after my coma, I was in a wheelchair. For the next month and a half, I used a walker. I could stay awake no longer than about four hours a day for the first three or four months. I didn't even Mm. start back to work until January of the next year. And even then, it was just part time. But what happened to my business is we didn't fail. I wasn't here and we didn't fail because I had put the right people in the right position and they ran the company. Now, granted, we didn't make a lot of money that year. I think we made like 1% or less, but we were still standing. And so before I was, yeah, before I was ill, I ran the business, meaning I touched every client, at least 90% of the jobs in the house. I knew exactly what was going on, what stage they were in who they were being worked on by, and what our final result was supposed to be. I came back to the company and realized I didn't have to do that. I became the director of culture. I became the strategic lead. I got to do things that really helped with my strengths, where I was able to add value to the company and not be, I guess, not be the blockage that you sometimes become when it's all going through you. So that was my first real big challenge. And I think the company, honestly, is better because I was ill. Now, my husband would argue with that statement, but I would say it's been a blessing. 
because I learned some lessons I would not have learned any other way. So you ended up with an employee-driven company by accident. Yes. By accident. You and have it's been such a blessing. Right. And 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 I agree with you because I drive clients to to have that vision of you want an employee-driven company. You don't want to be owner-driven. Right. You exactly. Want, you want to go and and you. Unfortunately, through bad circumstances, you ended up there, but you ended up in a better place. I did. And, you know, I believe and I say when I keynote, I talk about employee engagement a lot. And when I keynote about that, I say happy employees make for happy clients. If you do not have employees who are engaged fully, see the value in the work you do and actually enjoy themselves, they're not going to make for happy clients. Yeah. And I think that's really important because a lot of CEOs go, oh, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. And frankly, we'd probably be more profitable if I looked at that all the time. But I also look at employee happiness and I look at things we can yeah. do to make sure that my employees are engaged. And then it does translate to the projects they work on and the clients keep coming back. That's awesome. So think about what you're doing with your managers in your business. Uh, in the areas of leadership and management, uh, what are the sort of the number one or two or three tools? You know, if you've got one or three, it doesn't really matter. But what are your go-to tools as leaders and managers that you perpetuate the culture that you want? So I would honestly say it's their ability to do their jobs without too much oversight because it translates down the line as well. We're a pretty flat organization. And my goal is to hire intelligent people who can do their jobs well and even do them better than we think they can and maybe do them better mm -hmm. than another person who did it before. And what I want to do is free those people to do that. I don't want to sit there and have somebody under my thumb. I don't like micromanagement. I don't like my managers to be micromanagers because it's an ineffective strategy. If you can yeah. hire the good people, tell them what to do, show them how to do it and let them go, you're going to get a lot higher quality work out of people and higher engagement. That is the one major tool that we use is the ability to let people think for themselves. We also fail Love fast. It. I would say that's the second one. If you have fail an fast. idea, bring it, fail fast, bring it to the table. If you fail, no harm, no foul. We'll move on and do something else. What did we learn? Let's go further. But failing slow is a bad thing. I think failing slow is a very bad thing. Because it, it depletes the company. It's like sucking the blood right. out of them. Yep. So I would say one of our primary core values here at Artitude is people first. And that translates to employees first. And it also translates to serving our world. So we really try to put people rather than process and rather than profit at the forefront of every decision we make. And that's been, it's been amazingly good for business. Awesome. So if you think about the uh, next level for Artitudes, what does that look like? Do you have a vision that you're working towards? I always have a vision I'm working towards. I actually revamp my vision every January. So I'm in the process of starting that again, which I really enjoy doing. But I like to look three, five, ten years out to see where we're going to be. And a lot of what I'm looking at this year in particular is technology and the way it has changed and how we have to change with it or we'll no longer be a viable company. So about four years ago, five years ago, maybe we started a little tiny practice in the area of motion graphics and video. And now it's over mm -hmm. half our business. 
It's 50% wow. of our business now. Yeah. And so what we are doing now is looking at what's next in technology so that we can grab a hold of it early enough to hold on to the tail of the kite. Make sure we soar ever mm-hmm. higher as we go. That's really, mm-hmm. that's my primary objective with forward thinking and vision. Cool. Let's wrap things up with sort of the, the, the crowning question of all the things we've touched on and anything that might be running around in your mind. If you could give one piece of advice to folks out there that are in their growth path, you know, that we're all growing, but they're maybe a mm-hmm. little younger in their growth. What's the number one piece of advice you'd share with them? Oh, I'm going to give you two, though, even though you told me one. Okay, <laughs> you can first, have a bonus. <laughs> the first one is dust yourself off. Fail and dust yourself off. Learn a lesson and move on. Do not beat yourself up because whatever failure you have or whatever lesson you need to learn, it's for a reason. And it can only mm. make you stronger if you build upon it. That's my life philosophy, I think. Second, and this is what I tell people when I do interviews and when I do panels for business owners and people who are growing, is gather your tribe. You need people who know things way better than you do. You need professionals. You need a coach. You need a peer group. You desperately need an accountant, a lawyer, and a banker. Those are the ones that I always say, those five. But there's other ones you need, too. Just basically, you need people who know things that you don't know. But be the dumbest person in the room. Always be the dumbest person in the room if you can, because then you're always learning. Well, you're still the owner and founder, and and getting smart people to help you is wonderful, right? It is. Great. Well, listen, uh, that's all the time we have for today. You've been wonderful. Thank you, Andrea, uh, founder, CEO of Artitudes Design. What can I say but thank you? Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. That was a lot of fun. I hope it's of value to your listener. It will be. Thanks very much. And have a merry Christmas. Thank you, too. The Go for Growth podcast is sponsored by Resources for CEOs. We help overworked business owners take back control of their time, build a team-driven company, and multiply profits. Get your free copy of How to Get What You Want from Your Business at resourcesforceos.com slash guide.